This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Uh, well, well, a very good evening, folks. Uh, I can only apologise if you were trying to listen earlier on uh, technical problems. I don't even know if they are resolved yet. I am trying my very best. It's my first show. My name is Paul Hamilton, and I'll be back with you very soon after this short jingle. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So a very good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, if you're listening live. I do apologise, it's my first show and of course something had to go wrong. I do hope that if you are on the, the live stream right now that you can hear me and everything is okay. It had to happen. It had to happen on the first night, didn't it? So my name is Paul Hamilton. It is an absolute pleasure to be with you this evening. My first outing as a host on a Teachers Talk Radio and this evening, uh, the plan is that we're going to be talking about historical accuracy uh, in terms of in terms of teaching it and in terms of you know how how actually important is it that we get the details right because one of the things that I was thinking about was um, you know it, it's no secret that, that history is it's incredibly vast you know history grows by the second by the minute by the day so how how reasonable is it that you know, as, as history teachers, for example, or just anyone who wants to learn and, and you know and pass on knowledge about the past, how reasonable is it that we uh, we, we can you know know everything and know everything to the extent that we know every absolute detail? So how so how important is accuracy? And one of the things that I was I was sort of thinking about prior to to starting the show about a week ago, I put a poll out on Twitter and I was asking folks, you know, about about movies where, where history is where history is the theme and and we, we have obviously a wealth of popular historical movies that maybe don't always quite get it right they might be entertaining they might be you know great fun to watch and all the rest of it but they don't always get it right and really is, is that a big deal and the ones that from from the the conversations that i was having on twitter with people that really sort of came to the forefront films like braveheart for example and uh, or you can just do any history by Mel Gibson, I suppose, and, and we, we could talk all day about it. But we'll, we'll pick on Braveheart, and and um, you look at the events of say the eleventh of September, twelve ninety seven, the Battle of Stirling Bridge, and we we have a situation whereby the 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 English and the Scots are pit against each other over the River Forth, and of course the bridge collapses, and it's you know it's all very dramatic. But if we watch that scene in the a, a Braveheart movie, we, we don't see any river, we, we don't see any bridge, we, we, we see nothing of, of, of that whatsoever. So is, is, is that important? Does that matter? Are we allowed, to, are we allowed sorry, to take a dramatic license, as it were, with, with movies when it comes to the telling of the past? And I do have to say, I, I put it up as a, as a bit of a poll, and a, a Mel Gibson in particular, Took a bit of a bit of a kicking, and one of the other ones that that, that wasn't necessarily to do with anything that I was putting online, but that came up was a was a boy in the striped pajamas because I think there's someone correct me if I'm wrong here. I think there's a second book on the way or a second movie. I'm not quite sure what it is, and and that's obviously very kind of divisive as well because it's it's a movie that can be used to to get young people thinking and, and talking about the Holocaust, but there's there's no denying it the the accuracy isn't necessarily as it should be and at times maybe the message uh, is, is not what it should be as well and of course I'm, I'm being very diplomatic there because I'm sure people have a lot of very strong opinions so so how how important is it to get facts right and I do have a uh, joining on the show tonight um, as I said a wee bit of technical problems earlier on uh, so I'm at the moment scrambling around pressing buttons trying to get them into the into the show but I do have two people that I'm very much looking forward to, to chatting with one is Dr. Callum Watson. He's a he's a Scottish medieval historian, and he has advised on on films uh, such as Outlaw King, for example, 
Um, and a, I've also got Taff Gillingham, who I can just see he's appeared on the screen, so that that's good. We've got him, and Taff has consulted on advice, uh, sorry, and advised on countless uh, historical uh, feature films and, and television dramas and the like. So, you know, I really want to ask him in particular how, how important is it? You know, do we need to get right down to the the buttons on the tunics? they need to be exactly right that type of thing and one other thing I'll, I'll anytime i have a chat with taff is i'll speak to him not quite seasonal at the moment but he, the christmas truce if you follow him on in anything online he, he tends to get uh, embroiled in in the stories to do with the christmas truce and, and what actually happened and and of course the football game and that's something that we will be chatting about so you can if you're listening to the on pod being a uh, live just now that's great a very good evening to you if you're listening obviously later on at some point i hope you're having a, a nice morning or afternoon or maybe evening whenever it is but if you are listening live you can pop questions into the chat on the screen or just any points in general you know what is in your opinion um the worst historical movie in terms of accuracy or you know is it that it's even just the case of when we're teaching should we be showing films in the classroom to teach history because i know that 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 argument sometimes comes out just about movies in general and movies is maybe a bit of a waste of time in the classroom or a sort of dead time and then other people say no no i quite like to to use movies as rewards and other people who would want to use movies as as you know as a really way of sort of trying to bring a topic to life so you could I'd be interested to hear your opinions about that as well about whether or not we should even just be, be using films in, in that sense. So anything at all. And you can also uh, get involved on Twitter with the, with the hashtag, uh, the hashtag TT Radio and through the account on Twitter as well. It would be lovely to hear your thoughts on this. Now, when I carried out um, this, or sorry, I carried out, what, what I did was I, I started a bit of a conversation about these, these films, for example, uh, that I mentioned there. And uh, I, I put these out as a, sort of a poll on Twitter and I got people to, um, I suppose, vote. Yeah, that's what you do, isn't it? It's a poll. Yeah, you vote and uh, about historical accuracy and just uh, whether or not uh, <laughs> these films are rotten, I suppose, is what I'm getting at. And I'm just uh, having a look at some screenshots at the moment that, that I took of, of the results that came from this. So. Um, here was, how, here was how I posed it. In terms of historical accuracy, which is the worst movie from the polls below? And I had to group them into sort of groups of three and four. And, and the first one that took a bit of a kicking, uh, and it's, I've actually never seen this, I think the Disney effort is Pocahontas. 70% of people in, in the particular poll had a go at Pocahontas, so they did in terms of its accuracy. I, I honestly cannot comment. Uh, that was up against Argo and Alexander. Argo's the... the Ben Affleck film, so it is. Um, I think that's about Iran, if I remember right. Uh, and then there was Alexander as well, which again, I've, I've not seen. That was tempted to say Colin Farrell or Orlando Bloom, can't quite remember. One of them anyway. Uh, and then in the other polls, uh, Braveheart, oh, it took, it took a real kick in, in terms of people's opinions about historical accuracy. 87% of people voted that. That was up against Pearl Harbor. And The Last Samurai, again, Last Samurai is the Tom Cruise one. I've, I've never watched that one before, so I can't comment on that. Pearl Harbor, it's a film of two halves, isn't it? It's sort of a love story and a, an action film um, rolled together, so it is. Uh, the Patriot, Mel Gibson again, History by Mel Gibson. That, that took a bit of a, bit of a kick in, so it did. Uh, it was up against Marie Antoinette and, and 10,000 BC. Um, I've seen The Patriot. I, 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 I'm quite easy Ozzy, when it comes to films. I must admit, I quite enjoyed it. I'm not an expert on the, the American Revolution either, so <laughs> I, I don't know if it's horrifically off the mark. Someone can by all means let me know. Uh, we've got Shakespeare in Love took a bit of a took a bit of a hit as well in terms of its popularity for accuracy. Uh, that 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 topped the poll there against GFK and Gladiator, so it did. And then the last one to, to top out in its poll was 300. The, the Gerald Butler one, I think that was about the, was that maybe the Peloponnesian Wars or something? Again, someone can, can comment and, and they can let me know um, about that, whether or not. But I'm just having a wee look at the chat just now, just get a wee comment came in there from someone saying that, you know, movies in general, I think here, these sort of movies, they're, they're vital in terms of uh, allowing pupils, young people to gain a visual perception of the detail 
Uh, and and I have to I have to admit I I, I do think there's uh, there's something to be said for that as a teacher. Um, I I I show films in the classroom. I do. Um, I, I I think they're they're a sort of a rich and valuable resource. I, I think that it's they, they add. I guess you talked there about a visual sense to it. I think they add some sort of context. You know, I'm going to pick on Braveheart again. We're talking about a time period of 700 years ago, very dissonant from what young people would associate with the modern day. So it's interesting to see how people dressed and what they ate and how they acted and where they lived and so on and so forth. So that can that can uh, really, I think, I think lend itself. So so it can very much so to to um, to that sort of contextual sense. And I've just now got Callum in as well. Apologies if it sounds like I'm hesitating because I'm slightly chasing my tail, but we are we are getting there. We are getting there, so we are. So looking at the time just now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut now to a short uh, a reel with the news and some updates. And then after that, we'll be back and we will be speaking to Dr. Callum Watson. So please don't go away. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out. Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Bath, a new 10-week scheme has been launched to encourage children to become care home friends. It is aimed at children aged 5 to 14. The scheme has been introduced by care home friends and neighbours and is funded by Dunhill Medical Trust, the National Lottery Community Fund and the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. Director of My Home Life England, Tom Owen said, Intergenerational work can boost children's self-esteem, broaden their worldview and improve empathy and understanding of others. Both children and older people 
can get so much out of a relationship with each other, but their contact can be very limited. This project helps to build links with care homes, a part of the community schools might not otherwise engage with, and equally helps care homes feel more connected to their local community. We've seen so much joy, fun and energy in all our local projects, and we hope our Become a Care Home Friend Challenge will spread this even further. In Northern Ireland, Article 4 of the Education Order 1998 enables teachers to use force to stop pupils engaging in disruptive behaviour. This legislation is out of step with the United Nations standards on corporal punishment and a recent review has recommended that this should be repealed at the earliest legislative opportunity. Rachel Hogan, the Children's Law Centre's Special Education Needs Representative said, There can be no doubt that the existing framework and guidance has led to instances where the human rights of vulnerable children have been seriously violated. The grievous impact this has had on the children affected, as well as their parents and carers, has now been brought into the public domain and acknowledged. Michelle McElveen, Education Minister, has said she endorses the recommendations in her department's report. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about improving your skills. I listened to the morning show with Dorian Brown last Friday and he was discussing teachers' tech skills. I'm not here to start a discussion, that's his job. However, this week I investigate can you get better at tech for free? Is there any CPD out there that doesn't cost a fortune? The answer is yes. There's a lot of online self-paced courses out there and even some supported by bursary funding for cover to get you out of the classroom and trained in school time. So, what did I find? Let's start with free training. Let's face it, the big three companies in EdTech are Apple, Google and Microsoft. So, what do they offer? Apple Teacher is a free professional learning program designed to support and celebrate educators using Apple products for teaching and learning. As an educator, you can build skills on iPad and Mac that directly apply to activities with your students. Earn recognition for new things you learn and be rewarded for the great work you do every day. Sign into the program and work your way through the badges to get your Apple Teacher certificate. Google for Education offer a free training for educators. Courses range from beginner to advanced and there's also lots of courses on getting the most out of devices such as Chromebooks. They also have a certified program consisting of educator level 1 and level 2. All resources are free but if you want certification it's done through a paid exam. You can also go on to be a certified trainer, innovator and coach. Microsoft Educator Centre offers hundreds of free online self-paced courses for educators. All have a certificate attached and a badge that can be shared. There is also a dedicated educator pathway to become an innovative educator, trainer and expert. All of these are free. If you want to fine-tune a particular skill, there's loads of free training providers out there too. For example, Coursera is an online self-paced course platform that offers free training. If you want a certificate, you'll need to pay, but lots of courses are free and if you don't need proof of completion, go for it. Finally, there's lots of different hubs out there to provide bursary-funded CPD for schools, computing, maths, English and MFL to name a few. A great way to find out what's on offer is to contact your local teaching school hub, as they will know what is available in your area. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And we are back. Now, I'm delighted to uh, introduce the, the first of two guests that I'll be speaking to on the show. First up is Dr. Callum Watson. And I'm going to read this straight from his bio on Twitter. He's a Geordie. That's, that's first and foremost. And then a doctor of 14th and 15th century Scottish history. Uh, Callum, I'm, you're, mute, you, you're unmuted. How are you doing? Can you hear me okay? 
oh, it's just one of those shows, isn't it? We're just going to have <laughs> problems left, right and centre. So um, I'll just give him a wee second. We are, connect we are connected and, and I know that he is there. Um, we've been having a few wee hoping the night problems, so to speak. Um, Callum obviously can't get through on the, the headphone and we have tested it, it was working. So I think there's gremlins in the system, so to speak. Um, what I might do then is if I can't get Callum... Um, Hello. Oh, he's there. And I was I think, just about to give up I think, to Callum. <laughs> I think it actually might have been my fault this time. Oh, um, well, I just, I noticed the button. The yeah. <laughs> this is to see what this one you have. Anyway, it's lovely to hear your voice. You okay? <laughs> yeah, grand, grand. You see, when you have medievalists on shows like this, anything more technologically advanced than a crossbone were just completely baffled. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I did expect a, a few problems when, when folk listen to this as a download. They won't maybe appreciate that for, for 15 <laughs> minutes or so I was just speaking to myself and no one could hear me. <laughs> so, but thankfully, that I don't think that will make the, the, the final edit. But uh, as I say, lovely, <laughs> lovely to have you on. Uh, it's, it's been a while mm. since we, we last had a proper chat. So I've, yeah. I've got you on tonight, Callum, in, in a sense of talking about historical accuracy. And you are a Scottish medievalist. And any time I annoy you about this subject, I always lean towards I've mentioned it a few times very far. <laughs> Because you know, I I wonder has it has it done more damage than good? You know, any thoughts on that you might have? Yeah, I mean, I think o overall it's probably been a net benefit. Um, so I mean, my um my uh, PhD supervisor Steve Boardman tells a great story about him working up at um I think he was working at Aberdeen um when it came out, and you know, in the years. Leading up to that, there was just a handful of them uh, working on sort of Scottish medieval stuff up there, tiny little department just doing their own thing. And then suddenly 1995 comes along and Braveheart comes out and suddenly the courses are massively oversubscribed. There are people sitting in the aisles of um, lecture theatres. So I think on balance, it's probably done good in that it's drawn a lot of people's attention to medieval Scotland that maybe otherwise wouldn't have encountered it before. Um, but mm -hmm. certainly in terms of historical um, accuracy, um, it it doesn't rate <laughs> great. Um, I mean, based on what you know, because I know you have advised, um, your advice was outlooking. You, you, yeah, you, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I, you know, wonder... And I don't know if you're allowed to say, answer this properly. Who knows? Maybe you're going to give away secrets here. Um, but I, I just wonder, when, when, say, a film like Braveheart, and I, and I did specifically, I hope people could hear me, but I did specifically mention the Battle of mm. Stirling Bridge when, when it's portrayed in Braveheart. There's no bridge. There's no river. Um, mm. is, is that about money? Is that about it just doesn't fit with the narrative of the story? Too much hassle? I, I mean, because... Someone somewhere had to be telling, I can't even, did Mel Griffin direct? I have no idea. But someone yeah, somewhere had yeah, to be did. telling them, look guys, there was a river here. <laughs> you know, why, why yeah. do you think in, in films they can be so blatant sometimes? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably changes from film to film. Obviously, um, so when I was brought onto Outlaw King, actually because of the final battle scene, um, the Battle of mm -hmm. uh, Loudon Hill at the end of that movie. Um, so I, uh, as far as I'm aware, I'm allowed to to say this. You know, um, hopefully I'm not going to get sued by Netflix or anything here for giving away <laughs> trade secrets. But I had um, so I, I I work day to day at, at the Battle of Bannockburn Visitor Centre, um, and um, our then boss had had initially been brought on as the historical advisor. Um, and he obviously knew I was kind of, a, you know, an expert on Bruce in that period. Um, so he'd been for a while, he'd been asking me odds and ends of little questions about quite esoteric things. And I just, I didn't think very much of it until it reached a point where he said, what did I know about Loudon Hill? And Bob is Bruce, one of the sources that I looked at for my PhD thesis. That is hands down our most detailed account um, of the battle. So I'd said, I know plenty and so he had said to me look we've been working on this film um they're coming 
to do the the final battle scene and nobody can figure out what on earth they're supposed to do for this last battle. So if you can draw us up some plans and, you know, run us up a wee document telling us sort of vaguely who should be there and where should they be and how should it all go down, um, mm-hmm. we'll, you know, see if we can get you on, you know, a, a, as an official advisor for it. And the final product, I would say, for that um, battle scene is pretty good, except... Um, so the, the the basic plan that the Scots use at Loudon Hill, um, Bruce digs uh, tr- trenches on either side of a road. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a road that passes between two sort of big fields and then two mosses, two big sort of swamps. Um, and Bruce digs trenches across those, uh, across the, the fields so that the English are funneled into that narrow space between um, mm-hmm. the trenches onto the road where their numbers don't count for anything. So that's how Bruce beats this this much bigger army. Um, in the movie, you'll see that when the English can't get through the Scots on the road, they actually end up going around through the mosses, which is not something that um, happens at the real battle. Okay. Um, now, that was a discussion that was had when, um, when we were advising them. Um, and in that case the filmmakers just really liked the kind of visual of the English getting bogged down in the mud and, yeah. you know, getting that really sort of grisly, um, almost sort of World War One era, you know, muddy, mucky trench warfare feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suspect sometimes it, you know, probably more often than not, I suspect it happens because of that, because somebody thinks, you know, it's more dramatic this way or it'll look better on film. Um, for the Sterling Bridge bit, I suppose, you know, it maybe would have been a bit of a faff for them to get get the bridge yeah, set yeah. together. It, 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 well, it would not have been an easy film to see. Yeah. Uh, sorry, keen to film, I should say. Um, no. I can't imagine. Um, I, yeah, I, I, just, I just do wonder that because, I mean, what you're saying there, so for example, I, I, I know the exact thing you're talking about in, in Outlaw mm. and and I think that, that battle scene is oh, it's spectacular. I mean, yeah, I, I'm quite, you know, you know self-confessed history geek, as you know, and conflict <laughs> history is sort of what I like and doesn't tend to matter the time period, but I think that's pretty yeah. spectacular to, to look at. But that, that, I guess, what you're saying there is something that, is it fair to say that's something that you as a medievalist, you know, would, would really specifically, or a Scottish medievalist would really pick up on and would it really make a difference to see my pupils, senior pupils getting ready to set an exam on that topic that, whether they know about that that fact, and that, that that that's maybe what I'm sort of wondering at tonight. And I'm, I'm deliberately being uh, controversial here, but you know, the, the, to what extent mm. do we need to get it absolutely right? And and, and I've certainly this chat with Taft before, and he's on soon about people who get very defensive of their own corners, so to speak. You know, this this yeah. is my area of history. I know it inside out. Mm-hmm. you as a general history teacher or history lover or whatever it's going to be, you're not going to come along and <laughs> kind of mess it up and, and yeah. get it wrong. And I wonder if medieval history, that's maybe um, because we're so far from it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you guys behind closed doors sort of have your your, your, your head in your hands saying, oh my yeah. God, what are you doing with my <laughs> beloved? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think we definitely get um, too hung up on historical accuracy sometimes i think the thing is it's it it's relatively easy to nitpick films for details like that um you know there are always going to be things where you you know you can point out somebody has strapped something to themselves wrong or is using a you know a helmet that's you know years out of where it's supposed to be um but i i mean i think the thing for me about that as well as you know it maybe being a somewhat sort of bad faith criticism of these things, because of course there are issues of, you know, the time and the money it takes to do these things. Really history's not so much, I think, about those little niggly details. Obviously we want to be accurate in our historical analysis, but at the end of the day, history's about interpretation. And Mm -hmm. that's especially true when we're looking at medieval history, because there is such massive gaps you know you can't just go and ask somebody well you know how did they you know tie shields to themselves how did somebody you know how um 
you know, how was a particular um, bit of armor pieced together? Um, you know, hi history is about differing interpretations, you know, as historians. And hopefully what we're doing when we're teaching kids history is teaching them that, you know, it, it's about analyzing sources. It's about, you know, it, it's like being a detective trying to figure out what went on in the past. It's not necessarily so much about, you know, worrying about the precise length of a, um, you know, a long sword versus a great sword or whatever. And I will say mm -hmm. this in terms of, you know, to link it back to um, films, the, in my opinion, the best medieval movie out there is also one of the most inaccurate, at least in terms of sort of material culture. So you might be familiar with The Knight's Tale, Heath Ledger movie. Oh, God, I've not seen that in years. Yes. That, that, is that I, wait a minute, is that the one, or am I going to embarrass myself, is that the one where it's at a theme park and he falls in and he, no? No, no, no. So, oh, I mean, it, 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 it <laughs> yeah, and uh, so and there is, I, there's definitely a film similar to it where again it's very sort of joust oriented but uh, but uh, so a knight's yeah. tale is heath ledger is a um basically a kind of peasant who right, pretends okay. to be a knight and goes off kind of yeah. hustling the jousting circuit in kind of well it's not it's never really clear exactly when it's set it, in they mention the battle of poitiers which is 1356 but then I, it is just kind of vaguely mid late 14th century. I think the director reckoned that he, he intended it to be in the 1370s. Um, but I mean, the, 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 this is kind of my point is that the time period, other than that kind of vague sense of being mid to late 14th century, isn't really relevant. I mean, you know, they have the crowd singing, um, the crowds of joust singing queen songs um, they dance mm -hmm. to a David Bowie song at one of the feasts. Um, at one point, he, uh, I mean, the, the armor is all wildly anachronistic. At one point, he's wearing like a kind of round head 17th century helmet in a, a sword competition at one of the jousts. But all of that, all of those kind of little details, I would say, are irrelevant to how fantastically well the film encapsulates kind of mid to late 14th century chivalric society what it's like to be a knight okay. you know what it's like to be on that jousting scene um paul bettany plays a, a version of uh jeffrey chaucer that is entirely unlike the real jeffrey chaucer in almost every way but he he plays him as um william william thatcher is is uh, heath ledger's character's name uh plays his herald and i've never seen a better um depiction of what a medieval herald was like what what role they played on this jousting circuit there's a great um moment where he's kind of vamping to you know um raise william's reputation ahead of this joust and it just sort of blow for blow sums up what that world was like which you know makes the fact that you know, they're singing songs from the 70s and 80s and, you know, the fact that the arms and armor is all kind of dubious kind of obviates all of that because, you know, if you want a group of teenagers at a Scottish high school to kind of understand what nightly life was like in the late 14th century, there's no there's no better hour and a half they can spend than watching that movie. <laughs> That that um, is an endorsement, by the way, and and I got someone yeah. uh, to to correct me. I was thinking of the the Martin Lawrence film Black Knight, <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I could, which I think is about something, a comedy film, but he, I'm sure he falls into a moat or something and wakes up and and made yeah, that does. Up, yeah. I, I that sounds familiar. Helen game was quite strong, but obviously it's, it's not. I must have watched the same <laughs> the, um, Mel Gibson films over and over again. <laughs> out of that, that vicious, vicious cycle, so to speak. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I am really strongly inclined to agree with you. I, I think film can, in the classroom particularly, have, have a strong mm. place in terms of history. But I do think we need to, and, and it's the same with anything. If, we were, if I was approaching any sort of written 
primary source in history, I would always, you know, encourage mm. young people to approach it with some level of criticality. You know, yeah. not to take everything as absolutely gospel and whatnot. And also as well, you, you did you mentioned at one point there about anachronisms, and it's quite fun to actually teach anachronisms too, particularly with younger people yeah. to get them to, to pick up on. But it's it's a level, isn't it? It's like you say, I mean, a Queen song, for example, <laughs> in a jousting <laughs> competition, is, it's pretty obvious. But as I'm going to do yeah. to Taft shortly, um, we, we had a chat not long ago, we were talking about, you know, the wrong regimental button on a tunic, for example. And, and I know mm-hmm. why we people might get upset about that, but does that matter when yeah. you're 14 years old, learn about the First World War? I'm inclined yeah. to start a rally tonight and say no, I don't, I don't overly overly think that it does um do you, do you j- just lastly because i'm conscious of because i wasted time mm-hmm. tonight talking to myself <laughs> i do need to, to um wrap things up with you unfortunately but mm. um i'm just sort of curious that in, in the role that you have and when you do work with the, the public in general about medieval history young young and old this doesn't really matter do yeah. you spend a lot of time unpicking myths or preconceptions about that time period or, or do people tend to have it right what do you think overall um i mean there are there are always um I, I mean a mix of both there are you know there are always kind of you know common um misconceptions um i mean we spend uh, you know braveheart um comes up a lot people are always asking you know did robert bruce really betray william wallace like in the film um, that's one of the most sort of frequently asked questions we get. Um, and I mean, the reason that people ask that question is undoubtedly because of Braveheart. Almost inevitably, they they reference Braveheart when they ask you the question. And the answer is no. But that notion of, you know, Bruce playing this somewhat dubious role before um, before Wallace's death... Um, and that he somehow took up the struggle that, you know, Wallace left after he's killed. You know, that inaccuracy works its way into Braveheart because Randall Wallace, the guy who wrote the script, had read Blind Harry's The Wallace, which is the late 15th century uh, poem about Wallace's life, um, which does go out of its way. One of the key themes of that um, that poem is the idea that Bruce was this kind of defective king until he had the inspiration um, of seeing what Wallace did. Um, and it, mm-hmm. that's an idea that even Harry is borrowing from earlier writers, people like uh, Walter Bower in the 1440s, even to some extent John of Forden in the 1360s, um, writing even mm-hmm. before um, Bruce. So, you know, some of those inaccuracies that we now think of as coming to us from things like Braveheart, um, or even, you know, the spider story, which is about, about Robert Bruce, Robert Bruce and the spider, um, which, you know, is not a medieval tale, um, but, you know, does have earlier antecedents than Walter Scott, who makes it really popular. Similarly, you know, some, not all, you know, the tartan and so forth, that's a, 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 a kind of modern curse that 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 um, Braveheart has um, has brought about, but you know that idea of uh, Bruce betraying Wallace, Bruce taking his lead from Wallace, you know that is an authentic medieval inaccuracy. If you see what I mean, okay. this worked its way into okay. so yeah. you know not not you know sometimes like you say, teaching anachronisms is actually you know, talking to kids about anachronisms is quite interesting. So too is talking about inaccuracies because they're not always just the case that oh, someone didn't care enough mm-hmm. um, to pay attention to, you know, what regimental button they should be wearing, you know, how many rivets there should be in that gauntlet um, in that period, um, if you see what I mean. Um, so yeah, I think. As long as we're always, as long as we always have in our mind that we're trying to help folks get a better grasp of the issues that are involved and of the period that we're looking at, I, I, I think, you know, to to get mad or to decide that oh, you're just not going to deal with a film or a book or whatever, a TV show, or whatever it may be, because 
there are inaccuracies in it, I think you you're actually kind of limiting what it is yeah. you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope that kind of makes sense. <laughs> it does. It does to me. It does to me. And folks, anyone who is listening live, you can you can pop comments into the chat screen, and I will try my very best to, to pick up on them um, or as well on Twitter if you want to. Callum, as always it's been a pleasure. Sorry it's felt a bit rushed but that was because of the oh. gremlins in the system that I'm not even convinced <laughs> I've overcome because I've got reason to believe my microphone isn't working as it should as well. So, But you know we, we, <laughs> we're on air, we're live um, and, and hopefully people will be able to download this and, and thank you so much for being my first Oh, thank you for having me. Guest. Teachers Talk Radio. So thank you very much uh, and enjoy the rest of your evening, buddy. Okay? Thanks, now. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. So we have just just probably about maybe 25 minutes left, uh, and I'm delighted now to be moving on to the the second guest that I'm lucky enough to be speaking with tonight, and it's it's Taff Gillingham. And I'll just read straight off his Twitter bio as well. So he's a military historian specialising in the British and Commonwealth soldier of 1899 to 1960. And a bit like um, a Callum as well, he has advised on quite a number of, of film, television, and theatre productions as well. So, Taff, I'm hoping you can hear me. <laughs> I can hear you. I hope that uh, you can hear me. Yeah, I can. Oh, yes. <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> if we can just keep going for the next 20 minutes, we're, we're fine. How are you, sir? Lovely to hear your voice. Yes, you too. You too. Yes. And thank you very much for the invitation. It's uh, it's nice to be asked to uh, to be on your debut show. Splendid. It's, it, no, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I'm thinking you've been able to listen in there, but, and I know you know what we're, we're chatting about. It's about this idea of how important... Um, it is, it is accuracy when it comes to our, our, te- our teaching of history and our telling of history. And you, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> being very diplomatic, my choice of words, sometimes online on Twitter, you've been drawn into all sorts of debates to do with <laughs> accuracy. So um, h- how important is it, Taff? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think that there, I think it, 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 I think the, the, the honest answer is it depends uh, I mean, you've been having a fascinating chat about film work. And of course, you know, the bottom line is film by its very definition. That's, that's what it is. It, it's it's a form of entertainment. But my argument really, I mean, having worked in the whole business for, for 30 odd years, is that there are people who are paid to to research stuff uh, and to do it right. Sometimes there's a conscious decision, you know, if they, you know, Callum was talking about helmets. Well, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, the costume department will say, well, I, I know what the right medieval helmet is, but it's nowhere near as sexy looking as, as this particular one that's got more rivets in or it's got ear flaps or whatever. So sometimes there's a creative decision. Um, and of course, again, as Callum's point, there's nobody around who, who you know, t- to say, categorically it was like this um i think that it becomes you know as, as you get to, to more recent eras things like the first world war the second world war and uh, more recently um i just don't really see what the reason is for not getting the detail right i mean it's uh, you know it's available the, the 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 stuff's the stuff's all out there um photography has meant that that the, these more recent wars are uh, are well and truly covered so i i think that uh, really there's no real reason for not getting the detail right even if the story is by its very you know by the very definition of you know a, a, a piece of drama um but even then i think there's no reason why uh, script writers directors can't strive to to make sure that it fits within what's credible because that's that's my job as historical advisor is to say to a director, look, okay, it's uh, you know what you're trying to do doesn't make any sense at all. It's 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 a daft thing to do. However, if you do it like this, if if you if you look at the whole thing from the other side, you could do it like this. It will still give you the drama you need, but it but it you know but but nobody's going to come back to you in thirty years time and say why ever did they make it like this. So I think that sometimes there's no way around it. Very often stories have to be simplified simply because very often there are too many characters in 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 real history uh, to to tell a simple story in a in an hour long drama. So sometimes mm-hmm. characters that that might well have played an important role get written out, and their and their role in history is often given to somebody else just to to make it easier to understand. But I think yeah. that that 
I mean, you know, when we remade Journey's End in, uh, in, in 2017, that was a great example of the production saying to us, look, you know, you know what you're doing. You just make it right and we will, we will just create the drama with the actors. So all of the detail, all of the background, all of the weapons, all of the uniforms, all of the drills, all the behavior, you know, the, the way that everything was worn, all of that stuff was just dead right because there was no need for it not to be. And then it was just mm-hmm. down to the, you know, to the actors and the and the director to to bring that whole drama to life and to uh, and and to make it into a great film. So it, it, uh, to me, it's it was a great example of how it can be done right if if everybody working yeah. on it wants to do that. But of course, I having worked in it long enough, I I also know <laughs> plenty of the reasons why that doesn't always happen. So. So that's that's film, which is a you know film and drama, which is a very different animal. Um, in terms of sort of education, I mean, it's uh, you know it, it's something that I'm very passionate about. I've uh, I've done quite a lot of work over the year, years with pupils, with teachers, um, you know, with uh, with department for education and all sorts. And I mean, again, I think that the the frustration certainly with the first world war is the, is the fact that and and this is entirely down to the media the media have created a version of the first world war over many years which has simplified a, a fascinating subject a, a war that was fought on nearly every continent that lasted for four years that involved nations from all over the the, the, the planet and it's simplified that story uh, and, and, and a story which is full of some incredible achievements and, 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 and amazing scientific discoveries and, and all sorts of remarkable personal stories. And it mm-hmm. simplified that down into a, a very, very simplistic, oh, it's all mud blood, everybody gets killed for nothing, the generals are all idiots, yeah. and there was a bit of poetry. And once you've done that, once yeah. you've squeezed all this into this tiny little ball, what it then means is that, that if, you, if you're going to stick with that, you then can't tell most of the interesting stories about the first world war and i get yeah. the fact that there's only so long to to, to you know to uh, you know to to teach different subjects but you really can teach some fascinating interesting history that doesn't mm-hmm. conform to that at all and i think that the the, the frustration and, and i say this as someone who had at least four relatives killed in the first world war that we've kind of ended up where the first world war is taught as a kind of emotive thing which is all about dead blokes and yeah missing out some absolutely remarkable human achievements national achievements not just ours but but all 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 kinds of achievements from from all over the globe and i think that that's a terrible terrible shame because you know in in the end who who are we kind of fooling here you know (laughs) you know we we can learn some fantastic stuff uh we can pass that knowledge on to to another generation to, to then find out more stories but the minute that you've squeezed it into this tiny little ball of mud blood and everybody gets killed for nothing then suddenly mm. you've you've excluded most of the interesting bits about the first world war you really have and you know that, that that's been a talk to you all day about this because there's so many sort of different directions we could go in but just really off the back of what you're saying there and, and again potentially divisive what i'm about to say because everyone will have a you know a vested opinion perhaps or just, or just an opinion in general but the, the centenary period of the first world war was for many people a huge missed opportunity you would say <laughs> we had a chance to re you know dress the narrative or for some people to say it was a roaring success and, and everything was achieved as well and I, and I think it's maybe like you said what lens you you view it from did you was the centenary period just about marking it all hundreds of the Somme and 100 for Amiens and the Blues and yeah was it just was it about marking dates and events or was it actually thinking about as you see the, the contribution of women of people from around the world of you know innovations and in sea and air and animals at war and you know so many kind of fascinating ways we, we, we could have have went about it so but the other thing I would say to have to fight the corner of history teachers who might be listening to this is that um, and I know when we teach the First World War, and I'm not ashamed to, to say this, we, we balance it in and around, you know, we make sure we're teaching it in November so that we have, yes. we can be teaching it at the time of Armistice Day. And we do it in a very, probably quite deliberate, emotive sense because we talk about remembrance and the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and whatnot. And honestly, by the time we do that, there's so little time else. You know, because then there's other pressures in the curriculum, right? Well, actually, you've taught the First World War, now you need to do some medieval or some early modern or, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever it yeah. might be. And, yeah, it, it's 
it's incredibly difficult. I would be curious if if any history teachers are, are listening, if they want to drop any any comments in, because I mean the other thing as well is um, to, to wrap it on here is that I, I don't know how much of it as well depends on the, the the individual history teacher. My my my, my boss in my department. <laughs> if I had my way, I would probably just teach war from morning to night. And it's not because I'm a warmonger <laughs> or I'm a sadist, just because that's what interests me. And and I work with people who are quite you know kind of social historians and like a lot of political history yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, so yeah. there are so many um, individual kind of bias or or whatever that. that oh yeah, in yeah. It, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, very often, uh, you know, o over 30 odd years of, uh, of taking groups on battlefield tours, very often I'd bump into schools uh, and the lead teacher might be the geography teacher or, you know, so or yeah. not the history department. I said, well, where's the history teacher? Oh, well, he's, he's still on the coach, you know, he's, he's into Romans, he's not into all this stuff. Um, but uh, just a, a good point, actually, maybe even being even more controversial than you were. Going back to the, the whole thing about teaching uh, the First World War in November, uh, I, th there's a number of teachers that I know who deliberately avoid that and they teach yeah. it at other times of year to make mm -hmm. the point that actually, especially in a blazing hot summer, you know, they, you know, the, the, the war was fought in, in blazing hot sun too. It wasn't just in the mud. And interesting, I remember saying this to, to, to um, a teacher from one of the schools that recently came to our um, First War Museum down at Great War Huts in Suffolk. And, uh, and, and she was saying this, she was saying, you know, we, we deliberately avoid November. She said, because at the end of the day, November will be stuffed full of remembrance anyway. So they actually get two bites of the cherry and they get that delivered to them. And we don't need to do that. We can concentrate on some interesting stuff. So, so I think there's a, you know, I think there's, there are opportunities. Um, the other thing is uh, one of the teachers uh, who, who's been a great supporter of, of, uh, of our education program at Great War Huts, uh, Gareth Williams down at Kingham Hill School. Um, Gareth's school, they've, they've started an interesting thing now where they, when they go on their battlefield tours to France, they, they do two or three days um, before they go to any cemeteries at all. So they do a lot of stuff on the battlefields and look at the, you know, what was going on and who was where, uh, obviously mm -hmm. focusing on former pupils from the school. And they save the symmetries to the last day so that it's not wall-to-wall yeah. -wall symmetries because I, I, I think that the, the, the other problem that we have when you study the First World War is that, especially on battlefield tours, you can give the impression that everybody was killed because yeah. people like Blomberg and, uh, and Lutyens, they were creating overbearing memorials that would stick in your memory <laughs> for as long as you live. And mm -hmm. those memorials and symmetries still do that job now. So it's not surprising that six months later when the pupils have come back to school and you say to them, well, what do you remember about your battlefield tour? Well, symmetries uh, and lots yeah. and lots of graves because they were built to be, you know, you know, to to to, to literally you know, stick in your mind for as long as possible. Um, so I, I think that uh, that that Gareth's idea of 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 concentrating on lots of other stuff and then just doing the the, the remembrance part right at the end, I think, is a a very clever idea, and it it, it enables them to to get a lot more uh, stories yeah. and a lot more interesting messages across to the pupils. You know, as as, as part of the trip rather than just uh, you know you know oh it's Tuesday it must be uh, it must be Tyne Cot. You know, it's a, it's an interesting a very interesting approach, and it seems to be working very well for them. I I, I can totally understand the logic in that because I, I've done battlefield tours in the past and I'll do them again in the future and you can and in, in, on some occasions you know the, the sort of phenomenon of cemetery hoping and like you mentioned things, <laughs> yes, but you just, yes, you, you just yes, between yeah, them really because yeah. they're, they're, they're there they're tangible they have inscriptions yes you know, you, you, yeah. you, generally speaking you can tell the story especially somewhere like time caught and you can say yeah. this is where they were fighting for and this is what was happening um, but also as well, and I've been looking forward to picking your brain about the First World War, and, and part of the problem is that it is just so big as a country. <laughs> yes. you could, you, as you do, yes. you know, you've devoted, I would imagine, a considerable chunk of, of your life to it. And again, a similar question to what I asked Callum earlier on, um, and you can answer this about the Second World War if you want, but I was, I was hoping yeah. to pick your brain about the First Um what are the uh, the common misconceptions or myths that you find, you know, maybe more so from young people that you have to sort of challenge when they, because they all think that everyone, as you say, was up to the knees in mud for four years. What, what are the what are the misheld opinions? I mean, I, mean, I think that the the thing 
that if I go and talk to a group of people, whether they're school pupils, whether they're uh, the Women's Institute, whether it's uh, on one memorable occasion, a bunch of generals up at Chilwell. And the one thing that I will try and get into a talk or a conversation quite early on is the fact that of all of the 6.7 million British men and women that go off to war, 89% of them come home again. 60% of those come home without a scratch. They've never once been in a field hospital with so much as a broken arm. And 11% are killed. Now, that's an enormous number. There's, there's no getting around that. Uh, you know, 700-odd thousand, 800,000 uh, men and, a, and a, obviously a much smaller amount of women who, who do lo lose their lives in the war. And as I've already said, you know, several of them are related to me, so I'm not demeaning that. But the fact that most people who know nothing about the subject, their perception is that the vast majority of people were killed. And you literally hear people, you know, I'll, I'll do radio phone-ins like this, and you'll hear a presenter on the other end of the line literally doing a virtual double take. You are, what, 89%, come home. You know, that, 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 that's, that's not the impression that most people have. And in my experience, if you get that in quite early on, it's challenging people's perception. So straight away, you've told people something they didn't know. At that point, very often, they will then hang on to your every word, listening for other, you know, fascinating gems that you're about to impart. Because the, the big problem with the way that the media portrays the First World War in particular is that it repeats the same tired old stereotype to the point where people will turn on a drama about the First World War and go, oh, I know all this, I'm, you know, I'm comfortable with this. Any minute now, there's going to be the, the, the young officer who's, who's clearly going to get killed. There'll be an old drunken one who's, who's been out there too long. There'll be a, a young lad's going to get shot for cowardice. And all of those old tropes are in there. And they kind of come to the First World War with an expectation. And if right, right early on, you can then give somebody something that they didn't know, then it, it literally makes them stop and think. And after that, and, and, and to me, if, if, if in a talk or, or you know, in a lesson, if I can get across six or seven things that, that barbs that will just stick in the skin and will just keep playing on the mind and go, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. And it then makes people question everything else and start thinking about other things. And it just makes them, you know, makes the brain start thinking about history. And it's not just about the First World War, it's about all sorts of other history as well. And I think that's, that's become the problem with the First World War. And, and again, going back to the school tours, you'll see a school party going into a cemetery and every single pupil has got the name of a soldier who's buried in the cemetery. Oh, go off and find him and then come back and tell me all about him. Well, it's not surprising that they think everybody get, got killed because all 54 people on the bus you know, were, were effectively killed. Whereas actually, if of that 50-odd pupils on the bus, if 11% of them were in the cemetery and the others weren't in the cemetery at all, and when they actually found the details, they discovered that actually, you know, he, he went home and he got married and he died in 1968 after a, a long and successful career, it would start making people think about history and, 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 and give them a, a wider understanding of it and, and, and think, well, actually, you know, the, the, a lot of the veterans weren't defined by four years of the First World War. A lot of them went on and did you know, fascinating jobs or went on to invent incredible things. And the way that the, certainly the media portray it and, and the way certainly it's been taught for many years you know, in, in some schools, all it does is just perpetuate that. And really, that doesn't do any favours to the study of history. It doesn't encourage anybody to learn anything new. Um, and, and it's a shame because actually, from the First World War veterans' point of view, and I knew a lot of them, they were always kind of disappointed that the British public didn't really sort of get what they'd achieved. And you sort of think, well, you know, it's, it, 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 they, they, they deserve a, a better hearing and people to, to understand what they did. And if people made more effort to understand a bit more about it, and they're not, you haven't got to become an, a professor emeritus of military history, but you'll just find it far more interesting and far more human stories and lots of, just lots of fascinating stuff. And I think that, uh, I think that, that that's the thing that I enjoy most about teaching the subject to, to people that, that don't know anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I do enjoy the, the personal aspect of anything in history, and that Callum uh, it might be different for him, I'm just thinking here, but 
like like you say, it was sort of harking back to your point when you first came on, you were saying about how there's very little excuse with history that's modern, you know, 100 years or so, to, to sort of get things wrong. And we, we can piece together through um, diaries and accounts passed down and video materials and whatnot of what, what the personal experience of some people was like and yeah and yeah. And, 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 and i certainly like to, to convey that when it, when it comes to, to teaching um but again it all just comes down to time I know. and, and there, <laughs> when you think you know when i think about the, the the stories of people in the classroom maybe that you teach in the first world war oh my goodness you're going to think about say you're going to be talking about john mccree aren't you in flanders field or you know or Valentine Strudwick is buried out at Essex Farm. You, you you probably find it just becomes then the same people who are going to be spoken about uh, almost. And I, almost and, I, again and I think and that again. there's and I, and I think that 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 there. I mean, what a, a, a teacher a couple of years ago when when the whole uh, pandemic started said to me, you know, I'm, I'm working on sort of stuff for for home. It, can you give me some names of, of exactly like that? Who who should I be looking at? I said no, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a list of names of people not to talk about. Because then if you cross off mm -hmm. your Joe Strudwicks and you cross off John, John McCrae's mm -hmm. and you cross off the Sassoons and the Owens, then once you've moved past that, you'll start finding some really interesting stuff. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, he, you know, he, he did come back to me and say, well, this is a really interesting story. You know, uh, where, where do I need to go and look a bit, bit more about this? So that, yes, of, of course, it takes a, a little bit more work. But it's worth it because at the end of the day, the, 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 there are so many avenues and so many things that you can relate to other subjects. Whereas at the end of the day, a lot of these, a lot of these stories of, of, of the people who just have their stories told over and over again, apart from anything else, their stories have ended up being misrepresented and, and, and are, are no longer... <laughs> <laughs> no longer particularly yep. representative of what they'd actually did in their own lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I always find that anyone who isn't familiar with who I'm talking about, when you mention Joe Valentine Strudwick there and, and you go to Essex Farm Cemetery, he's about 14 and a half, maybe, I don't know, 14 year old, or something along those lines. And, and yeah, you see these yeah. teddy bears it's left been, yeah. on his headstone. And, and, and this is, again, my own opinion, and, and I know it's shared by a lot of people. And a boy who obviously uh, lied about his age, you know, to, to sort of go off and fight bravely as a man and was killed and then you see these teddy bears and I, I don't know I just think something <laughs> is that really what he would have wanted or is that the whole point they were trying to show his age but I don't know it just never sits terribly I, well I, I've him. always got this yeah. vision of poor old Strudwick, Strudwick sat up in Valhalla with all of his mates and they're not, yeah. you know, nudging him going yeah mate there's another another teddy bears just showing up exactly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know I know it's, it, I, I know I know I know and I feel yeah. like I feel quite horrible when i especially now that i'm saying this out to the nation potentially when people are listening. but i think but but i mean but you know it, but but but, well but, but again it's another opportunity because the opportunity is to say look nowadays you leave school at whatever age you leave school at these guys left school at 11 and 12 years old you know that but that by the time most people joined the army they'd already been working for several years you know they didn't consider themselves to be school kids they really didn't it wasn't you know, the world that they lived in, you know, w was a very different world to the world that we live in now. And I think that, that that is a real fundamental. Were they the same as us? Actually, pretty much they were. They really weren't much different to us. They really weren't. But was the world they lived in different? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the world that they lived in, the life they lived, all of that was very, very different. And I think that, um, I think that if you can get your heads around that, so much other stuff can fl can flow from that. Um, you know, the, I remember um, dear old Don Hodge making that point that, you know, that actually it, it, it's impossible now for people to understand that it could be better to get yourself killed as a 20-something-year-old than to see an endless life of drudgery stretching ahead of you that you knew you'd never escape from. You're going to be stuck on that farm doing the same job day in, day out, no matter what the weather was, until you were too old, too ill, or too dead to do it anymore. And along came this amazing adventure. And for most people, that is exactly what it was. And the, the, the amount of days that they were actually in any danger was tiny compared to the days that, that they were out of the line, they were exercising, they were playing sport, they were training, they were doing all that stuff. And, and once you understand that, 
you have a very, very different view of the war and it gets you away from that. Oh, you know, they spent four years up to the waist in freezing cold, muddy water being shot at all the time. And you, you then start to understand why it was that so many people volunteered willingly and went off to war because, you know, it, 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 otherwise it doesn't make any sense. But once you understand the motivation, what, what drove them, and in, in the case with most of them, it's that they were bored with the day jobs and, and, and wanted to, to, to break away from it. And, and the reason so many of them didn't go back to those mundane jobs were that they'd suddenly found themselves working amongst all this state-of-the-art wireless technology and vehicles and aeroplanes and goodness knows what else. And why on earth would you want to go back to working on a farm up to your knees in, in, in freezing cold mud in the winter? <laughs> well, we have one minute to ask and you're not expecting this. I'm going to put you in the spot and I do mean it. We have one minute. You have a captive teacher's audience and I would quite a strongly assert to you that the, the most uh, missed taught <laughs> of any uh, World War One uh, part of the story is around the Christmas truce. You have one minute. What <laughs> happened? What didn't happen? 60 seconds ago. In most parts of the line, um, the vast majority of the line, nothing really happened at all. In quite a lot of places, the Germans did get out of the trenches first. They did instigate a bit of a truce. If there was football at all and there was there's certainly a couple of tiny cases but i suspect that if more than 30 people kicked a ball about with the germans out of 30,000 i'd be amazed and it's a terrible shame that football has been allowed to completely utterly drown what is a, a fascinating period of history and with some amazing stories on both sides so if you're ever going to teach the story of the christmas truce start by not talking about football how's that <laughs> <laughs> you are a gentleman and it's went so quickly and it's always a pleasure and the same to Callum as well thank you so much and that's a pleasure catch up with you very soon uh, thank you very much for listening this evening if you have been listening live if not then this is available as a podcast download which of course you'll be listening to right now uh, if you're hearing my voice I'm going to be on the late show every fourth Friday of the month. I hope next time I manage to sort out all the gremlins. I do apologise if the microphone right now is not working as it should. I really have enjoyed it. It's been good fun and I'll be back soon. Cheerio, bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.